Hi, welcome to Offscript. I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Today we are talking about Luca Guadagnino's... Oh God, I butchered it right in the intro. Guadagnino. Luca, Luca Guadagnino's Call Me By Your Name and Studio Ponox Mary and the Witch's Flower. Two very obscure films for a very obscure podcast. But first the news, we should get right down to brass tacks. First things first, Universal trying to salvage the Dark Universe's Bride of Frankenstein film so universal is trying to salvage their dark universe as seen in 2016's the mummy and any thoughts on this well they have tried to salvage this thing twice now so the mummy right. was actually the second attempt at starting it actually started with uh what is it i dracula or I, dracula I, un- I frankenstein dracula untold un- dracula right? untold that's right yeah so they're trying to put together this monster universe because just like everyone's trying to do the Marvel thing and create a 30 film franchise. So Universal's attempt was this dark universe based on classic monster, monster movies. Uh, So far they've failed at two films and I thought they were going to maybe stop and just not continue with this. But apparently they're still trying to make the Bride of Frankenstein movie happen. Right. I think it's important to maintain skepticism on this because so many times in Hollywood we end up with some kind of announcement or rumor that something's going to get made and it sounds completely absurd and you probably shouldn't address it. Um, I know at one point a few episodes back we talked about who might be cast as the new Batman and that's just because I was really pushing for it. We have no idea if that's going to happen. This is kind of the same way. A Bride of Frankenstein film sounds absurd, but looking at what's possible, DC made a hit with Wonder Woman. Marvel is pushing for female powered films um if they're trying to build a universe it might be a good angle to go for it's kind of a last ditch effort a hail mary uh pardon the pun what's interesting here currently they've got slated to make this thing uh javier bardem is supposed to play the monster frankenstein and in talks to play frankenstein's bride the bride of frankenstein would be angelina jolie or possibly gal gadot which again ties right into the wonder woman thing it's absurd my, my official opinion on this is, like, Universal, you, you poor schlubs. You tried so hard, and you failed so hard. Did you try that hard, though? Your stupid dark universe is not going to work. Like, you look like idiots when you put, it in the, you put that bumper in the front of your movie because everybody thought it was goofy, and you're not really getting anywhere. And it's a shame because I think there really is potential for a dark universe, but, like, not in the way they're trying to do it. We've talked about this before. Um if I mean, what what would you think would be some possible tweaks to the Dark Universe? What could make it better? What would make it more like appealing? I mean, you have to do just kind of like Marvel did, where they made individual solid films and they hoped to build a universe. They didn't, you know, that was like the end goal, but it wasn't their initial focus because they didn't know if it was going to work. They needed to make sure each stood, each film stood up on its own. And that's where I, th- I think they're kind of putting the cart before the horse, where they're just like, oh, we have the universe, and then we're going to make the movies. And th- there's a great picture that they took that has all of their you know potential future stars, like Johnny Depp as the Invisible Man, and someone else as a werewolf, and someone else as Dracula. And, you know, and it's like, this is our dark universe. And so they were trying to advertise the future films by having this, this star-studded photo, and it's very likely that most of them will not get made. Right. And that's a shame. I think there's real. I, I really do believe there's potential for all of these movies to kind of make a comeback. The, the This universal universe was definitely a thing at one point. The monster universe was very popular in film. 
Um, and it has definitely slid into obscurity at this point. I think a lot of modern moviegoers aren't familiar with them, really. Um, and it's a shame, because I really think you could do something with it. But, like, I think they're trying too hard to appeal to, like, what their accountants tell them will make money. It's like, oh, right. well, we have to make this for families. And, like, it's got to be fun for kids, but also adults have to like it. Everyone's got to be PG-13. I think they should follow a model like, and, and I know I, I butchered this before, uh, the horror universe that, what, Insidious set up? Uh, Conjuring. 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 Well, well yeah. both of those franchises have been very successful. Right, and they're not necessarily like I'm not gonna I'm not gonna stand on this podcast and say that those are like incredible films or anything, but like they're scary and they're effective, and you can build one on top of another and kind of put a universe together. And they've been financially successful is the important right. part. Enough to keep making them for God's sake. Like if they're gonna make these movies, like I think they should embra- embrace the horror, make them scary. You know, like make them scare the hell out of you. And then the next one comes out, and you're like, oh man, I remember how scary that last one was. I should go check this one out too. Stop trying to like tackle what Marvel is already doing and what DC is also, frankly, lamely attempting to do as well. <laughs> right. Do your own thing. Yeah. Like yeah. make your make your own kind of trek, and you'll be a lot more successful. And who That's- even and who even Star Wars is struggling to build their universe and they have one it's just it's not an easy task and i think everyone is acquiring properties thinking you just make the movies and it happens and the cast just flows and it's it's they got to be good they they have to be cohesive they have to tie in together it's really challenging no yeah we've said it before and we'll say it again it is not an easy task to make a movie universe and this really does feel like some some exec, some Hollywood suit was sitting in a room full of, full of other Hollywood suits. He's like, Marvel's making it happen. DC's making it happen. What are we doing? Let's just do exactly what they're doing and we'll make money too. And that's it's not going to work, especially in a industry that is already chock full of universe movies that are family friendly. There's too many of them. Like we're already getting burnt out on them. That's why movies like Thor Ragnarok stand out because they're a little different. They grow the formula. They change. They like evolve with our expectations you're trying to do what was popular like five years ago like you gotta you gotta get with the times make your make your own moves i guess well and i think i feel like people maybe um you know they say that oh are we getting burned out on the superhero film which i don't i don't think we are but i think people only have so much room in their lives for you know only a few you know huge movie universes Marvel right, is they, one. They Marvel is number one in our hearts, <laughs> no matter it's true. what. true. Mar- Marvel got the big one, yeah. Yeah, and then good luck catching up to them. Right. It's And it's exactly that. And I can only go to a movie so many times in a year and see some kind of generic villain tell me that they're going to blow up the world if some generic superhero doesn't stop them. Like, you can't raise the stakes any higher than you already have, I don't think. I mean, even like Infinity War, I'm skeptical of because I'm like, oh, look, another villain that's going to blow up the world unless our <laughs> famed heroes stop them. Don't get me wrong. It looks like a cool movie. I, I don't want people to blow us up with email at offscriptfilmreview uh, and <laughs> com. tell us uh, <laughs> .com uh, and tell me that my opinion sucks. But um, like you can only do it so many times, you know, like uh, you get bored. We get desensitized. We have short attention spans. That's why movies are usually 90 minutes long. If you're going to hit me with something, it's got to be new and different. And it's got to get me excited to watch a movie. Dark Universe's Mummy didn't do that. Um, Bride of Frankenstein, it doesn't sound like it's going to do it either. Plus, 
frankly, this is one of those. This is just a title issue. How many people are going to go see a movie called Bride of Frankenstein? Really? That's the, like a hokey title. The other thing, you know, I, I'm just not sure what their angle is. Like, are they trying to make action movies? Because they're not trying to make horror movies. They're not trying to make scary movies. So it's a monster movie, but it's not scary. I just, I don't know what what the angle is. Right. Here's. I, I came across this in my Netflix queue the other day, and and. Christine's not a fan of scary movies, so I didn't watch it with her. But here's what I think is a very effective move towards building universe. Did you see 10 Cloverfield Lane? I did. I thought that movie was brilliant. And it's set in a universe, and it builds on what came before it, but also kind of leaves questions for what might come after. And it came out of nowhere. It was just this little kind of low-budget thing they made, and they are like, oh, hey, and here's a movie in the Cloverfield universe. And it worked great. It was like good writing and clever execution and it worked and it got me excited for whatever's supposed to come next like they're trying to make these giant blockbusters they're supposed to blow me out of my seat and like it's not and make like 30 of them right like and if you're gonna do that like i think you need to embrace subtlety i think you need to embrace like the subtle approach if you make a movie called bride of frankenstein I don't think that many people are going to like really be into that and want to go see it. But what if you called it something else? What if you called it like a woman's name? And then as they're watching the movie, you start to realize, oh, this is kind of like the Bride of Frankenstein story. And there you go. That's your in. Right, like you yeah. make it different but similar. And that's that's what they need to do. Those, yeah, are, the, so, those are the accountants talking. Right, exactly. This is the, well, this, it, it'll be popular in, in Google and people will search for it more if we call it this. So I don't know, man. Which reminds me, I heard a funny, uh, a funny conspiracy theory the other day, film-related conspiracy theory. Uh, it's on a Reddit thread. Did you, did you read that? Did you hear about those? Uh, what is it? Uh, you ever heard the theory that uh, Walt Disney is cryogenically frozen, right? You're right, and yeah. The, right. The theory is that uh, the reason Disney named their most recent animated film Frozen is because when you Google Disney Frozen, it'll come up with that before <laughs> Walt Disney results. It's like, oh, that's funny. <laughs> so they can sweep it under the rug more easily. That's right. Yeah, and and uh, keep that keep that man on ice. Right. <laughs> Next up, speaking of launching films, uh, Movie Pass, our favorite favorite movie service, I guess, launches Movie Pass Ventures. Subsidiary will co-acquire films with distributors at Sundance Film Festival during uh, Movie Pass's. Yeah, there's, no, there's really no good way to set this up. During MoviePass's content series, Off Script, The Future of Film. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, MoviePass announced... We're, we're going to have to contact our lawyers to uh, get a hold of MoviePass. I'm afraid I'm afraid MoviePass's lawyers might contact us. Um, <laughs> that, might, that might come out of left field. Uh, during MoviePass's content series, Off Script, The Future of Film, they announced that they will be getting into the film finance end of the business. The monthly movie service subscription announced that they will be launching MoviePass Ventures. I already said that. Basically, what this is, and correct me if I'm wrong, Andy, the whole angle here is they are going to be getting in the film finance business. Similar to Netflix and Amazon, they will be purchasing films they see to distribute, right? Right, exactly. Right. This sounds wacky, and it's wacky to me because I'm kind of new to this whole back-end who's distributing what film business. I didn't really understand it when Netflix and Amazon were doing it, and I have an idea why MoviePass is doing it, but before I get to that, I'm curious what your thoughts are. I mean, first off, it's it's incredible what MoviePass has done in the last six months. I mean, in, in July of 2017, they were nothing. Very few people even knew about their service. 
Mm. August comes and they they lower their price from fifty dollars a month to ten bucks a month, and they explode. They went from twenty thousand users or twenty thousand subscribers to one point five million in in about five six months. It's mm. incredible. It's an incredible amount of revenue is, and now I think they're they're seeing their financial clout. Um, and seeing what else they can do, what other parts of the movie business they can be in. Because I know that they didn't want to just stay in the um, the ticket service business. That was a foot in the door for them to become a big player in other ways. And it was uncertain what that those other ways were going to be, but this is step one. They're in the finance business now. Right. I think it's interesting here that MoviePass says it's creating an annuity and benefiting from... I'm reading this right off the article, so if it sounds like I'm reading, it's because I am... Uh, creating annuity and benefiting from greater downstream revenues on all platforms, including theatrical, home entertainment, streaming, and pay TV, foreign sales, digital and physical home windows, hotel, airline streams. So Movie licensing. Pass, right. MoviePass needs to make money, right? Yes. That's where they're at. And, and based Right. And based on their current model, like pricing model, that's no surprise. I, I think anybody could see that coming. They, they are probably not making a ton of money. I think, and this is just a very small reason for me to think this way, I think it's kind of a double-edged sword. If MoviePass buys the rights, uh, licensing rights to like an awesome movie and it comes out in theaters, if you use MoviePass to go see that movie, it's almost like MoviePass didn't cost anything. That movie, that money goes right back into their pocket, right? Right, I mean, yeah. a little? Yeah. yeah. So it's great for them and it gets people to use their service, which keeps money coming in. And they can also use that money uh, to license it out to hotels and airlines and put it on Netflix. Like, I don't know. It all seems very beneficial, and it's weird because I'm I'm not a I'm not a suit as I would call them. I I didn't see this coming. I didn't think that Movie Pass would be getting into the yeah. I I don't think anyone did. Uh, you know, everyone was so focused on the service and how bad how bad it sometimes works, and the stu- the theaters that do take it and the theaters that don't. And no one was really thinking what their next step was going to be. So this was really kind of out of left field. And it's interesting to see uh, just what, how it'll go. And, I mean, it's a big power play uh, in the industry. So it'd be interesting right. to see how everyone else reacts. And I mean it when I say I don't, I don't understand as far as, like, distributorship is concerned, where it's headed. I, I genuinely didn't get it when Netflix and Amazon started doing it. Now I can see. Now, now you can see, okay, here's what they were going for, and now I get why they're doing it. MoviePass kind of jumping into that uh, that circle with the rest of them and, try, and trying, to get an, trying to get a foot in is weird, but at the same time, like, looking at the kind of trajectory Amazon and Netflix have taken, it's it's not really a surprise. Like, I get it. Why not? You know, it seems seems like a way to get in, get in good. And I, I have to wonder how chains like AMC feel about this, seeing MoviePass not only be successful – but start to supersede them because you don't see AMC distributing a whole lot of films um, outside exactly. of the theaters anyway. Exactly. So, yeah, it's kind of a frightening thing. I mean, at this point, MoviePass has enough people under their service and they told everybody that they're selling their data. Like, you can't, well, I guess you can buy data like that, like what people are going to see, when they're going to see it. Like, that all matters to somebody. Yeah. Um, it, it genuinely does, like, worry me where it's all going, but I guess same time like hey ten dollars a month for all the movies you can watch who cares so i suppose it's cool i mean we yeah it's it's they're doing what netflix already does you know they, they know your viewing habits when you watch what you watch how much you watch all those things and they use that data to make you know decisions on what kind of shows and films they're gonna make yeah and if netflix can make a movie like bright that 
critically is panned, but a ton of people see, and they can sign that for a sequel. Like, I would imagine MoviePass, with their data, can do a very similar thing. They can have an idea of, okay, what are people going to want to see? And let's buy that, and perfect, we'll, we'll make money on that. It's very accurate marketing. I just don't know if it makes for good movies. And speaking of bad movies, I guess, before I try, <laughs> did you have something you want to say? Before no, my terrible go, no go ahead. <laughs> speaking of bad movies, um, the Razzie Awards are coming back around. You sent me this. I, I don't know a whole lot about the Razzies. How does that work? Is there like a, a, a membership board? Is it like... I'm not real sure, but uh, just to explain to all our listeners, uh, the Please. Razzies are the kind of the opposite of the Oscars, where the Oscars are... You know, the awards for the best best of the best film and all the technical awards in acting and all these different categories. The Razzies are the exact opposite. The, you get nominated for worst film, worst actor, worst director. And it, it's mostly fun and kind of t uh, tongue-in-cheek because a lot of times there's films that aren't necessarily that bad or but maybe just bombed. Um, right. It's not. It's obviously not televised. If it was, you'd probably know about it. It's funny, um, there is some kind of ceremony, I know, some kind of actually awards thing, even though nobody from Hollywood shows up. Uh, Halle Berry definitely showed up to pick her pick up her Catwoman award a few years back. Oh, gosh. Probably like a decade ago now that I think about it. But um, it is something. And, and some people take it seriously and some don't. I think most people kind of just presume it's a joke and it's not that big of a deal. But the Razzie Award nominations for 2017 are out. And I figured maybe we should, well, you figured, really, you sent me this story. I don't want to steal your thunder maybe we should talk about them maybe we should just look at some of these and see what we think so yeah. let's start with wor worst picture so, let's start with worst picture yes so we have these yes th sorry the nominees are baywatch the emoji movie 50 shades darker the mummy and transformers 13 the last night <laughs> or or whatever it is i've lost track it's definitely. I thought it was supposed to be Transformers Five. I guess that's like a a, a joke it, on their part, right? That it's yeah, seventeen yeah. is what they're putting. Uh, the movie I'm shocked to not see on here, frankly, is Pirates Five. I figured Pirates of the Caribbean Five for sure would have made that. I didn't go see Pirates Five, but you know, I heard it was something else. Um, so that's surprising. Mm -hmm. So the Emoji uh, movie is the one that I I've heard is kind of the worst thing out this year. I mean. Yeah. Did you... You didn't see it, right? You didn't no. see the Emoji movie? Did you watch any reviews or anything? See what people thought? Yeah, I, I've I've read... Or I've read... I've I've listened to a couple of reviews, and, you know, it's, it's just terrible all the way around. It's a, totally a cash grab. And the, the, the funniest thing about it is because, you know, trends and memes happen very quickly. Internet culture moves very fast. However, movies take a while to make. So by the time something like this gets in the theater, it's already old and outdated. Like, all the jokes are old. Right. And I love that it came from Sony Pictures because Sony <laughs> has gotten to the point where like anything they put out is awful. Um, almost anything, I should say. They put out Baby Driver and that was great. But um, this is the one thing the Emoji Movie does well. The one thing I, I appreciate the Emoji film for is it gives me hope for any obscure Hollywood rumor or screenplay or possible picture deal I've ever heard in my life. Because I heard about the Emoji Movie like years ago. I think we all did. And we all laughed. Oh, come on. Who's going to make a movie about emojis? What would it be about? There's no way that could be cool. And sure enough, it got made. Even though it was terrible and everybody that worked on it had to have known it. <laughs> and so anytime I hear a theory about, oh, uh, Neil Blomkamp's going to make Alien 6 or something. I'm like, maybe if the Emoji Movie could happen, 
Maybe this could too. How, see, when I hear about rumors like that, I, I tend to believe the bad rumors more than the good rumors, unfortunately. You, you cynic. <laughs> we burned, we've been burned too many times. It's yeah, true. that's right. Um, okay, um, so some other notable ones. Uh, worst actress. The one that I'm surprised to see on here is um, Jennifer Lawrence for Mother. Mother. Uh, Darren Aronofsky's very crazy. Anybody who and, hasn't seen Mother written down has no idea where we're shouting Mother yeah. into the microphone. <laughs> It has an exclamation point at the end of the the title, so that's why we have to yell. And it's capitalized. Yeah. Mother. Um, So uh, she's actually very good in that film. That film is just, it's just insane. It's crazy. It's a a surrealist allegory that's a little bit too heavy handed. Mm. Um, So it's kind of tongue in cheek that she's, she's on there, but mother, mother is not the first time it's on, it's on the, it's in the Razzies. As we shall see. Um, scrolling through. So this is also uh, quite amusing. A worst actor uh, is Mark Wahlberg, both for Daddy's Home 2 and Transformers 23, The Last Night. I can appreciate that he's on there twice. And they do this a couple times. They'll list somebody or something and have two two, two reasons next to it. And I love that. Like, it's not just... No, you, you were equally bad in both of these. Also, I want to mention Johnny Depp in Pirates... Eight, no, 13, Dead Men Tell No Tales, and Tom Cruise in The Mummy, which I thought was stark, <laughs> right. I guess. Um, we're supporting actor, uh, Javier Bardem, for Mother and Pirates of the Caribbean, <laughs> uh, Dead Men Tell No Tales. So t- two there. Um, I, I did want to mention Anthony Hopkins for Collide and Transformers 17 the last night. I don't remember I Collide. I don't either. Isn't it supposed to be Sir Anthony Hopkins? And also, how did Sir Anthony Hopkins end up in Transformers 17 the last night? I remember a- seeing him in the trailer. And I was like, oh, my God. It, you you won an Academy Award. You've been knighted. What are you doing? <laughs> why, why are you in Transformers you 5? You know, it's, it's, what, it's the Michael Caine thing. Like, because he was in Jaws 4. And, and they asked right. him, oh, why, why, why did you do Jaws 4? It was so terrible. And he said, well, I haven't seen Jaws 4, but I have seen The House It Bought. Right, which always I've seen makes the house that it built, which always uh, makes me laugh. Do you uh, want to do the honors of reading worst screen combo? Because that is a treat. Oh, uh, yeah. I'll, <laughs> oh my god! Please, do. I, I haven't I'll, even yeah. actually read all these, so this is going to be really funny. Okay, so we're going to start with Fifty Shades Darker, and the screen combo is any combination of two characters, two sex toys, or two sexual positions. <laughs> um. Next one, any combination of two humans, two robots, or two explosions from Transformers <laughs> 83 the last night. Um, any two obnoxious emojis from the Emoji Movie. Johnny Depp and his worn-out drunk performance <laughs> in Pirates of the Caribbean 10. Dead careers tell no tales. <laughs> and uh, this is my personal favorite. Tyler Perry and either the ratty old dress or the worn-out wig from Boo to a Medea Halloween. I love it. The only other, the only other category I think I want to cover is worst director because I think it's always worth worth covering. Uh, Darren Aronofsky and Mother. Yes. And, uh, so this, so I want to say one one thing about this. So please do. Mother is is uh, I have to respect the film. I did not like it. I did not enjoy it. I would not recommend it to hardly anyone. It looked like it caught a lot of hell. It really did. But at the, at the same time, I I can respect an artist swinging for the fences. And he goes yeah. for it, and he goes big, and it it's a swing and a miss. Like, it, it it's a big, heavy-handed <laughs> religious allegory. 
Yeah. But I, like, I have to respect the attempt because it is, I mean, it's one of the craziest films I've ever seen. I've never seen anything like it. It reminds me a lot of things like being John Malkovich, uh, Synecdoche, New York adaptation. A lot of these Charlie Kaufman screenplays, sure. which is, it's, it's insane completely. And it, it's, I think the, the what upset people is that it was billed as a horror slash thriller. And then it's this other completely bizarre thing. So, um, yeah, it's, it, it's a weird movie. I don't think it deserves to be necessarily nominated for worst director, but it's, um, it's, it's interesting that it's on there, but it, right, it's to insanity. Be, to be fair. And I, I didn't see it. So this is, this is very like offhanded looking at like the trailer originally. Like I did want to see it. I, I like I did. It looks really well shot. It looks really well lit. The performances seem pretty solid. The, the sound in the, in the trailer sounds really good from the trailer that I've seen. Uh, I like I don't like yeah for what it is it doesn't look poorly directed it really doesn't it just looks like it was kind of poorly written and that was kind of its downfall I don't know if he should be on for best director maybe that's just somebody somebody was just out to get uh, out to get mother I guess I, I, I don't know but um, compared to who else is on here Michael Bay for Transformers seventeen James Foley Fifty Shades Darker Alex Kurtzman the Mummy like yeah I, he he probably doesn't deserve to be on there it would be funny if he won though. Like somehow Mother scoops worse directing because it really out of that list it doesn't look like it deserves to be on there. So right, yeah. I mean, see, the rest of those films are terrible films, but Mother is just it's just really bizarre. And I, I think, like I said, it's a swing and a miss. But it's like I said, as an artist, I can respect the him just going for it. And here on Off Script, the home of bold cinema, that's what we look for. <laughs> is there anything else you want to cover on the Razzies? I think we're good. Let's move on to our first feature of the evening. Call me by your name. Call me by your name and I'll call you by mine. So the film takes place in 1983 out in the Italian countryside and focuses around a family um, that hosts a research assistant every summer as some sort of exchange thing. And the family is... Uh, mother, father, and son Elio, who is about 17, played brilliantly by Timothy Chalamet, who I've seen in three other brilliant or two other brilliant films this year. I'd never heard of him until about two months ago, but he's in Lady, Lady Bird and Hostels. Um, and Interstellar, which is weird. In a very uh, small role. Oh, yeah. wow. Um, so anyways, uh, the, the, the person they host is Oliver, played by Army Hammer. And he's this big, brash American. You know, he's physically just bigger than everyone else. And he's a little bit larger than, than life. Uh, he's, he's very handsome. The women fawn over him. Um, he's, and, but he's also kind of rude. He, he's, he's American. He's arrogant. He doesn't tell people where he's going. He just kind of gets up from the table and says, later. And so he initially r- just rubs everyone the wrong way. He, uh, Elio actually gets kicked out of his room to make room for him to stay uh, at their house. So they they kind of have this uh, tense friendship initially, um, but it eventually blossoms into this uh, you know romantic relationship between Oliver, who is you know probably closer to late twenties or early thirties, and Elio, who's just seventeen. Um, and and the film is about you know first loves, early relationships, and all this happens over the summer and it's, it's just really endearing and it's really touching. And it's not, you know, it's not about like the, the lustfulness or the sexuality of it. Um, it's just about genuine human connection. 
um, and it, it's just, it's really good, really good performances, and it's I mean it's a summer romance, so you know it's going to end, so it's it's sad uh, for sure. Um, but yeah, it was just a really great film. It's a little long, um, and it, yeah, it takes two, two hours twelve is that's it, it could be sh- it could be shaved maybe ten minutes off of it. Um, but I'd heard a lot of buzz about this movie. Uh, a lot of positive reviews, a lot of Oscar buzz, and yeah, it's it was just really genuine, really authentic, and you know the whole question about their sexuality is you know there's a theme of repressed sexuality because this is 1983, and you know I thought to myself this would have been kind of at the beginning or the kind of the height of the AIDS scare at, at that time, which was heavily blamed on the homosexual community. Um, and so both of the, the, both Elio and Oliver in the film actually kind of have girlfriends or have female interests and which is used to kind of conceal their sexuality from, from the world. And so there's a very kind of tragic angle. Um, and it's tragic for these women that are involved with them because they're, I mean, they generally have feelings they generally love them, the men they're with, but it's not, uh, reciprocated. Um, so there's just, there's a number of really deep themes and their relationship is just really genuine um and touching yeah it was it was just a really it was a really good film except except there i was in my theater there was someone who was some eccentric guy who was just making comments the whole time (laughs) and i could eccentric what do you mean like an accent no like when when i walked into the theater he was just i i don't know he it's like he was just very outspoken and almost like he was unaware of it you know, but he just literally just made like loud comments and jokes the entire thing, and I just I was kind of at a loss of what to do, and I've and I've almost just admitted that someone's going to ruin the movie at some point. Now, right, that's really where we're at. You know, you know, we talked about this a few episodes ago. You remember the idea of a theater that has a membership where like you have to pass a test in order to start to go to that theater? Like, I would totally sign up for that, man. I, I mean it. I really would. And like, if you cough or anything, the theater they just immediately throw you out. Like yeah. you gotta, you have to qualify by being a certain type of theater goer that's not an absolute savage. And it seems to <laughs> not matter how many, like, no matter how obscure I try to, a time I try to go, there's always, even if there's five people in the theater, one of those people is gonna <laughs> start talking or start coughing, sure. or get up for soda three times. You know what's really obnoxious in my local theater? Before I start asking you about this movie, because right. I, I do have questions, but. <laughs> Uh, my local theater, the one right up the street, that's like, I mean, four minutes away. I could I could practically walk to it. It's like super convenient. I love it. It's there. Nobody ever goes there, so it's quiet. But they'll have somebody come in, like an usher, two or three times over the course of the movie with like a red light flashlight, you know, that looks like somebody would wave down a plane in. And they come in and just stand by the door for like 10 seconds and then walk out. I'm like, what are you? What are you doing? Like, what do you think you're going to catch somebody in here, like, filming or something? Like, what are you... It's a What's power deal. Power trip. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's 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 the worst. And because they're they have this flashlight, like it's super obnoxious. I'm like this is worse than anything anybody in this theater would probably be doing. Plus, if they see you coming, they're not gonna. Yeah, whatever. That's that's my bit on people in movie theaters. But I want to ask about pacing. It's a summer movie. It's like you said. It's got kind of a rise and then a fall. And typically, movies like that really sometimes they can clash with like a normal three act structure kind of film. And at two hours and 12 minutes, so it's a little long. So let's talk about that for a minute. Do you feel like you can easily identify kind of the peak of Act 1, Act 2, Act 3? 
Does it feel a little muddled? How was it? No, I would I would say it, it's structured very well. Um, kind of the first act is just their kind of tense relationship because they can't kind of stand each other initially. And okay. they're also, they have to be very careful when they start talking about their relationship, you know, because they don't know how the other person does or doesn't feel. And it's kind right. of a dangerous time in the world to be, uh, to be gay. And so they very, they choose their words very wisely and their actions and they kind of tiptoe around things, but they eventually kind of realize that they have these uh, mutual feelings. Ah, forbidden love. Yeah. And one of the uh, things I noticed in the, tr- go ahead. Oh, well, the other thing I, I was going to mention is that the, their relationship is not a surprise to Elio's parents. They're very aware of what's probably going on and they're, they're okay and supportive of, of the relationship. And that's, that's, there's a very powerful conversation that Elio has at, at the end of the, end of the film with his father. That's a, he has this great monologue about life and love and how you live it. And, uh, it's just an incredible piece of acting by uh, Michael Stahlberg. Wow. Yeah, that's fantastic. I, I do want to ask about performances. I know you said Timothy Chalamet is yeah. already pretty great. I do want to know more about my boy Army Hammer <laughs> because ever since Lone Ranger, he's been back on the upswing. And <laughs> I definitely want to know more about Michael Stuhlberg, as they say it. Stahlberg, I think. For anybody who doesn't know, Michael Stahlberg has been in three Academy Award-nominated films. Or if they're not Academy Award-nominated, they probably will be three this year, which is almost a record for any actor in cinema history as far as... And I think only one other actor has done that. Three Academy Award-nominated films in the same year. He's got Shape of Water, he's got The Post, and he's got this. Um, Call Me By Your Name, which is nuts. How is he in this? Michael Stahlberg or and and Army Hammer, take your pick. Either or, like I said, he Michael Stahlberg has this an incredible um, discussion with Elio at the end end of the film, which that alone is like Oscar worthy. Um, Army Hammer is, I mean, he just kind of plays a stereotypical big loud American. Uh, So it's not a bad performance, but doesn't particularly stand out either. It's just okay. He's good at the character he's playing. And well, what's interesting is he, because he's older and more experienced, he kind of has to guide Elio or sometimes deal with Elio's like immaturity, you know, and sometimes, you know, Elio doesn't know how to act because he's 17 and this is his first time like really being crazy about someone and he doesn't sometimes know how to deal with those feelings or how he should or shouldn't act even after they are both uh, on the same level. Right, on the same page as the it page, were. Yeah. As far as the cinematography is concerned, filming in Italy, typically you're going to get a lot of exterior shots, lots of daylight, and it looks like from the trailer, this movie is the same way. How did it look? Was there a lot of exterior shots, interior? I mean, what, what do you think? No, you're exactly right. So there's lots of there's lots of swimming in this film. Like, there's lots really? of... Uh, okay. Uh, well, but in, like, in the lake, in the beach in the wa- local watering holes like it's you know it's the 80s you don't have the internet you have to actually go outside and do <laughs> do stuff yeah they couldn't they couldn't talk about cinema on a podcast <laughs> yeah so there's uh, a lot of scenes of him and his friends and they all just go out and swim in the uh swim in the river or swim in the at the beach and so there's lots of that it, it reminds me a lot of the, of the movie sideways uh for some reason just in it's very bright and there's lots of kind of pastel colors 
um, and it's in this old Italian village. Everyone's riding a bike everywhere. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, very, so you, very northern Italy. Yeah, so you get this very kind of relaxed, rural, foreign feeling from from it. And the other question I had, and this is because of The Shape of Water has spoiled me. Um, let's talk about the soundtrack. Uh, what what did it sound like? I mean, was there a lot of like, and the reason I say this is because Shape of Water just had a lot of like this beautiful kind of haunting French music, which really just kind of fit right in with the niche of the mm-hmm. film. It was weird, just like the movie was, but it worked. Um, wh- what did you expect in this? Well, th- that actually reminds me of something. So uh, Elio plays the piano in the film, and part of what he does okay. to fill time is he transcribes music. And there's this one part where they, they annoy each other because... Um, Oliver wants Elio to play some Bach on the piano that he heard him playing previously on the guitar. And when he goes to play it, he plays a piece, but he keeps playing it in different styles other than Bach. He's like, this is how Liszt would have played. This is how Beethoven would have played it. And Oliver gets really annoyed because he wants to hear like the original. And so um, his piano playing becomes part of the soundtrack. There's lots of this like Philip Glass, real repetitive uh, kind of sound. Huh. It goes on a lot. Yeah, I completely forgot that aspect. Of, but the the music and his music making is a, is kind of a big part of the film as well. That's really cool. I, I I have an appreciation for any film that kind of plays with diegetic and non-diegetic sound. For anybody who doesn't know, diegetic sound in film is music that is in the world of the film. Say if your characters are sitting in a bar and there's a, you know, a Rolling Stones song playing over the soundtrack in the bar, the characters hear it. People might dance to it. It's in the world of the film. Non-diegetic is music that is outside of that. Say, like, as a character is running through a field and you hear, like, a sweeping orchestral soundtrack, they don't hear that, but we do, the audience. That's non-diegetic sound. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, montage. So that's the difference between diegetic and non-diegetic. Any movie that can play with that, I can appreciate. Um, Birdman did that, and it got snubbed for an Oscar for it, but... um, I love I love when movies do that. It's just playing with the medium um, in a fun little way. And for a small movie like Call Me By Your Name um, that has turned into something much bigger than itself, I can appreciate it, I guess. So I think that about wraps my questions. Is there anything else you want to talk about specifically about this film before we get to recommendations? Uh, the, la- the last thing was, um, you know, I kind of cringe every time I hear the term coming of age story. It, I just, <laughs> I just kind of get this huge eye roll. Uh huh. Every t- anytime I I see that because I feel like so many times they're just not done very well. Yeah. Um. But th- this year we have both "Call Me by Your Name" and uh, "Lady Bird," which is also a great coming of age story with someone who's about the same age. Uh. You know, someone graduating in uh, high school. Yeah. Um. So it's so it's it's nice to have two films that are in that genre of coming of age story, coming but of age but story. but that do it very well. Sure. No, I, I I almost roll my eyes when I hear like summer romance, but at least this one sounds like an like an evolution of the format. It's not just like two kids in high school in 2017. It's like two people of different ages in 19 in, in 1983 in Italy of the same set. Yeah, like there's more to it than that. Like it, it kind of builds upon it. So I can get behind that. Andy, would you recommend Call Me by Your Name? Uh, absolutely. Hmm. Well, definitely. That by- <laughs> yeah, definitely. It's definitely one of, one of the. It's definitely one of the best best of the year, and I'm interested to see what uh, Chalamet will d- do with his. Uh, he's an up and coming actor, you know. Right. Well, I'm glad you like it, and I'll tell you why. Because I know a lot of people from uh, school that are very like 
kind of hipster film people and they they have just gushed over this movie oh my god it's the greatest you have to go see it what do you mean you haven't seen it yet so when someone when you tell me it's a good movie i'm like all right i can get behind that when they tell me it's a good movie i'm like yeah like malik is a good director like, yeah. <laughs> the, the malice sure Terrence the malice malik. is real right so, moving past Call Me By Your Name, now it's time for a new segment on our show, something we haven't done before. This is going to sit in for our Death of Cinema segment this week. Uh, we are talking about the trailer park. So, yeah, <laughs> the trailer park. And I'm going to be honest, we haven't done this before. So, I think we should explain what this is first. The trailer park is the name of a segment we're kind of inventing where we just talk about trailers that are coming up, things we've seen, things that are maybe new, maybe something that's been out for a month or two, just movie trailers and what we think of the movies in them based on the trailers that we've seen. Oftentimes trailers can tell a very intricate story of a movie that might be coming. They also might be a total falsehood and lie to you about what the movie is. <laughs> and often are. <laughs> and often are. Today we picked what, three trailers yeah, we've yeah. got. You pick these out. I, I think you should go ahead and introduce them. Okay, so the first one I, I want to start with is Tomb Raider. I'm a Ladies first. I'm not Open the tomb! I'm not Which is a reboot of the the earlier version by uh, that Angelina Jolie was, was in, which is based on a video game. Uh, right. and, and as we know, video game adaptations have not been done well to this day. <laughs> I think arguably that, ever really ever I, yeah I I think I think they could be they just hasn't happened yet um, and I don't think this is necessarily necessarily gonna be the one either but uh, it looks like a lot of fun when I saw the first trailer for Tomb Raider I was really turned off by because it, it just looked like a remake of the Angelina Jolie version which is really kind of cheesy and it's also kind of a product of its time um, but a more recent one came out. Um, and it just, it looked like a completely different movie. It's, it's very action oriented. Um, it's got some drama and, uh, Lara Croft, the Tomb Raider, uh, herself is being played by Alicia Vikander, who's tough last name. Yeah. Who, who has been in, uh, just, I mean, she's just blown up over the last two years. I first saw her in Ex Machina, uh, Alex Garland's, uh, sci-fi masterpiece. And then she's kind of been in, in everything since then. So it's, um, you know, it's kind of her breakout, first big breakout into a big Hollywood blockbuster role. And uh, she also got super, super ripped for this role. I, I saw an article about, like, the Tomb Raider workout um, that, that she did. And it was just, you know, this incredible diet and really hard workout. And she's just, like, you know, not bulging muscles, but she's just, like, ripped. Yeah. Uh, it's And, I mean, she was already, a, like, not a big person at all. But, it, you know, she's just, she's gone through a... A noticeable physical transformation for the role so there's a couple things for me to point out here one uh if you didn't hear my my bit about bioshock during the shape of water episode i'm a big gamer play a lot of video games i played the tomb raider reboot back when it came out back in the xbox 360 and that that's when they kind of rebooted the series they were going to move less away from like very uh over-sexualized Laura Croft and uh, to something a little bit more reasonable and kind of try to take a new approach on her character, which is when they came up with the storyline of her being a young girl who uh, travels on a ship for her first expedition after college um, through her dad's company, I think, to try to uh, uncover some kind of hidden tomb out in the Bermuda Triangle, basically. 
Um, and she ends up in like East Asia on this island where there's a bunch of magic and, and stuff going on. It's basically the template for the movie. Funnily enough, I actually replayed that just a few months ago. Not not for any particular reason for the movie or anything. I just uh, I had it and was like, yeah, I'll check this out again. And had a lot of fun playing through it. Um, and this reboot definitely embraces that angle. Very much so. Laura Croft is a young girl. It seems like she's just out of school. She's going on her first big thing. Uh, and she ends up on an island where there's a bunch of bad guys and there's some possibly mysterious forces at work. Her ship wrecks there, and so she's got to figure out a way out. It's almost exactly what happens in the game. My issues come from really the same way anybody would read a read a book before the book movie comes out and say the book is better. But seriously, the, movie, the, the game is very cinematic. Um, and it changed a lot of things from the game to the movie. And I don't know why. There, there's there's <laughs> accountants accountants yeah there, exactly there's this bit in the trailer about like her dad's crypt and it's got this like cipher thing that looks like it fell right right out of like the Tom da vinci Hanks's code the da vinci code yeah exactly yeah. and she's got to figure out this like puzzle that her dad had set up and it's got a video that's like if you're watching this i'm probably dead like it's vi- walton goggins is in it yeah. like it's very it's full of cliches Kinda, and I don't know why they added that and what they stand to gain by adding it, other than, like, a bunch of people rolling their eyes like, yawn, we've seen this before. I think there's a place for it in movies right now, especially coming off the success of Wonder Woman. Um, I really do, and, and like, it's funny because I watched it with my girlfriend, and she was like, that looks really cool, and I was like, that looks really hokey because I played the game, (laughs) and I had my own... My own experience, and the game, you know, the game was better, the snobbiest way you could kind of approach this. Um... I guess personally it looks all right, uh, but I am skeptical mm-hmm. in the same way I was skeptical about like the Angelina Jolie one. But um, I was going to say that I don't know. <laughs> it's such a millennial thing to say. The game was better. <laughs> it's true. Oh, my God. Isn't it, though? Yeah. <laughs> the game was better. I have not. Um, I mean, I'm a big gamer, too. I haven't played, uh, but I never really played through uh, that series. It's it's good. At least at least the first reboot is. I didn't play the second one, Rise of the Tomb Raider, but just Tomb Raider. I think it came out in like 2015, not 2015, like 2014 or something. It's good. Um, what's our next trailer? Uh, this one's a mouth mouthful. It's the fifteen seventeen to Paris. There you go. Thank you. Look at the baby soda, Spencer. Alex, shut the heck up. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes. Which is, oh, yes. <laughs> which is Clint Eastwood's new um, uh-huh. film about. Uh, this was a terrorist incident or attempted incident on a train in Paris uh, several years ago. And where three, I guess, soldiers um, intervened and kind of took down uh, this guy who was armed with, like, you know, uh, AK-47 or whatever and stopped the the incident from happening or from getting worse. Um, And so that's that's the kind of layout of the film. Uh, A lot of people, as soon as I this came out, a lot of people are immediately saying, like, oh, this is a propaganda film. Be, I don't, I don't know if I'd say that. That's, I mean, that's because of the subject matter and Clint Eastwood. Although I think people don't realize that his previous film, American Sniper, was not a propaganda film, but people thought it was because he came out and said, "No, this is like an anti-war film." Right. I have seen this trailer. This is why I'm excited to talk about this. This is why I laughed when you said it. I have seen this trailer since we've started this podcast. At least four times in a theater. <laughs> and just like last time, last week, when we talked about The Post, 
and we talked about trailers we saw in front of it. I saw this one then and couldn't remember it because it's that forgettable. <laughs> I'd like to introduce, I think this movie might break in, break new ground in cinema because this has introduced me to a whole world of film that I didn't know was here. And, and it's been here a little while. It's in films like Lone Survivor or American Sniper or even Gran Torino. A lot of Clint Eastwood movies, but it's the thing. I think this movie might be the first in a series of what we should formally call veteran exploitation. Very because I think I, I, call I it, think I had called it something. I had a similar idea called tragic exploitation. Tragic, <laughs> yeah. You talked about that, yeah, definitely. Um, with movies like uh, Blackwater Horizon, Deepwater Horizon, or um, Patriots Day. Patriots Day, yeah. All directed by the same guy for the Lone Survivor. By the way, it's a funny story. Um, yeah. This movie is like, oh, it's this story told by it. I mean, it's got this big screen and the trailer goes all black and white text told by the heroes who lived it. You know what that means? That means they're not actors and they were terrible. You and know, that's how you've got to <laughs> that's how you've got to advertise it because they're awful. I'm kind of I kind of want to I'm interested at that angle, like to use the real people who are actually there in the roles. Uh, Horrible. I mean, you think it's a terrible idea? I'm interested. I'm interested. I don't think it's a bad idea. I think the guys are bad in the movie. Like, this is a blockbuster film. They're advertising this in front of everything. Like, how good could those guys be? They've never been in a movie before. They're soldiers. They're jarheads. Like, they don't know how to act. Even if they're, like, reenacting what they've already done. Like, they don't know how to do any of that. In fact, there's there's a line in the trailer, because you don't get a whole lot of lines in the trailer. It's mostly montage, because we can't actually see these guys act, because they're terrible. <laughs> when one of the guys is on on the train, sitting next to his friend, and, and he gets a little soda, like a Pepsi or something, from... From like the the waitress who or what do you call it the, the the woman who's rolling a drink cart down the aisle on the train and he goes like hey Sean look a little Pepsi and then his friends like shut up Bobby or something and like it's a terrible exchange <laughs> and there's no reason these two people who know each other and are veterans together would ever say each other's names out loud like that in conversation and that's a line in the trailer like it's poorly <laughs> written it's poorly acted. It's horrible. And, like, the whole marketing angle is, oh, these are the guys that really did it. So support your troops. Support these guys. Come see this movie that cleans. You know, the, I just I just realized that, and you're absolutely right. Like, it's definitely part of the, the marketing angle that they're going to take. It's like the veteran, from you know, from yep. the fields of Iraq to the big screen. Like, that's yep. going to be the yep. how they Support the it. troops. Yeah. Do donate today to your local Salvation Army or something. <laughs> like, I... Uh, and I don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with that. But like, I just, I, like I've seen enough movies to know, like when you have a movie starring the people who were actually in the incident, their acting is God awful. They're not trained actors. They're not like, I get the angle. I get why in your head you would think that would be good, but like, there's no way they're going to be any good in it. And if they can't hold up the performance as the main people, it all falls apart. Even with even Clint if, Eastwood at the even helm. Even with Clint Eastwood <laughs> at the helm, Andy. Yes. So that's my opinion on the 1517 to Paris. Um, I think it's going to be awful. Uh, I think it will come and go, and nobody will remember it, and we'll see it in a two for $10 bin at Walmart next to Blade Runner 2049. <laughs> God forbid. So, so, yeah. Oh, gosh. Well, you um, know, I, I'm still interested to see it because I, I have faith that it, it could be interesting by using the real guys. And if it's not, I, you know, it'll at least be entertaining. 
you know, for for this show, I would go see it. I would. If we were going to talk about it one week, I would be willing to pony up for the price of admission and see the stupid fifteen seventeen in Paris. <laughs> so, <laughs> what's our other movie? What's the? Oh, I, I know it. But you want to go ahead? Ocean's Eight. Is it genetic? Are the whole family like this? Literally. Ocean's Eight, which is um, uh, which is kind of a reboot in a way of the Ocean's Eleven series, which was you know starred Brad Pitt and George Clooney for about ten years ago. Um, Ocean's Eight is an all female cast, um, right? With uh, Sandra Bullock and Kate Blanchett kind of playing the main uh, characters, and then a, a huge cast of uh, supporting characters: Mindy Kaling. Um, Rihanna. Zoe Kravitz. Yeah, yeah, Rihanna's in there. Go ahead. Oh, I didn't. <laughs> I was waiting for you to say something. I oh, okay. I so, you know, it's like the other Oceans films. It's a heist film, and it, it's set up that they're, looks like they're going to rob uh, some real expensive jewelry at, like, a big celebrity event, and Hathaway is playing the, the celebrity in question. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a really diverse comedic cast um and you know i'm pretty excited to see where that's gonna go yeah i i'm skeptical because it, it does feel a little bit like hey let's reboot the oceans franchise and build a universe out of it <laughs> like a little bit i you know i'm, I'm I, i've been burned too many times i've been hurt before uh by movies trying to build universes but it does look cool to be fair and like i enjoyed the oceans films to be fair um so for what it is, I'm like, yeah, could be a cool little heist flick. And I love a, I love a good heist flick. It's the reason I hated Rage 1. Um, because a good heist flick is a subtle thing. And you've got less players than Ocean's 13, which is great. You have kind of new characters, which is great. Um, they're all relatively familiar faces that we can root for and rally behind, which is great. I think it's kind of got everything going for it. So all it's, all it's missing is a... Oh my God, Frank Ocean, you're back! I thought you were dead at the end of the movie, starring George Clooney. Um, right? Yeah, yeah, that's that's inevitable. I, I hope we don't see that, but I, I yeah, I feel like we probably will. <laughs> right. That seems like post credits scene. George Clooney shows up and and he's sipping his sipping his Nescafe, and uh, for Ocean's Nine, <laughs> he's yeah, excited to pull another heist in Ocean's Nine coming summer 2020. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I'm optimistic. Why not? I, I'll give it a shot. It looks like a fun little movie. Um, <laughs> if another trailer comes out and it looks terrible, I'll, I'll judge it accordingly. Um, that's my that's my piece on Ocean's Eight, I guess. What do you think? Yeah, we'll wait and yeah, we'll wait and see. I, I'm looking forward to it. It looks funny to me. Uh, yeah, I, I like a good heist film as well. Yeah, I like I can. A good heist film is tough, man. It's tough to pull off a good heist film. It's like a, it's like a good action film. Like people think it's easy, it's not. It's it's hard to pull off a good heist. Um, so yeah, we'll see. I love a good heist. Um, the last movie, I think, since that's the end of our that's the end of our segment, right? Did you have any other trailers you want to talk about? No, that. Uh, well, actually, one that I just saw today, All um, right. which was kind of a surprise trailer, a gorilla trailer. Um, it's called Dundee, Son of an Australian Legend. <laughs> Good day, losers. Which yes. is an absurd title and looks to star, um, I'm totally black, Danny McBride Danny as McBride. the son of the legendary Crocodile Dundee. Right. Uh, 
and and he's not playing someone else. He is playing his you know absurd Danny McBride character that he plays in all of his movies. Right. I believe the line in the trailer is "Good day, losers." Yeah. <laughs> so that's really bizarre, kind of out of nowhere. Um, I'll wait to see. I guess we'll need to see more because they were very short trailers. Crim- is- Chris Hems- Helmsworth was partially in it. Who is who is Australian? Really? Oh, okay. I didn't. I must not have seen this trailer. I saw a teaser for it, which is just Danny McBride standing on a cliff or something. Yeah. I didn't. So there's like a full trailer out for it. No, there's another short teaser. Okay. Yeah, this one's interesting because I stumbled onto it when somebody like People or somebody put out an article that was like Danny McBride might have made a secret Crocodile Dundee sequel and nobody knew about it. This is a surprise. I, I did not know there was a Crocodile Dundee sequel on the way. Um, and I'm, I'm pleased for a couple reasons. One, because I didn't know I wanted a Crocodile Dundee sequel starring Danny McBride. And two, because I can appreciate any movie that's basically made in secret. Even if it wasn't really a secret, um, similar to 10 Cloverfield Lane, which I gushed about 20 minutes ago, um, any movie that's made like that, that they're just like, we're going to make it and just drop it and see what happens. Like I can get behind because it's somebody, even though it's a sequel, you're taking a chance. You're taking a risk. You're like, we're going to try to do something different and see if it works. And like, we need more of that in Hollywood really do. Yeah. Um, so as far as the Dundee movie goes, like so far, so good. Uh, I'll keep an eye out for the trailer. I'll go check out that other teaser you saw and, um, we'll see what it's about. Also. Yeah. I, the older I get, the more I appreciate Danny McBride for some reason. <laughs> I, I didn't used to think he was that funny. And the older I get, the more I'm like, this guy's, this guy's pretty great. So, so one thing that it does bring up though, because we also did have the, uh, Super Troopers 2 trailer earlier this week, too. Yes. What do you guys give me if I kill that bird? Farber, that's a bald eagle. Get away, baldy! And the thing about this is there's this trend of making sequels long, long after they should have come out. Like, Super Troopers <laughs> is, like, 14, 15 years old. Like, you, I feel like you have, like, a two- to four-year window to make a, a sequel to like, you know, a cult hit or something. You coming out with something 15 years later with the same jokes, this is particularly with Super Troopers, is just, it just looks sad and unappealing. A little bit. No, you're right. And uh, th- there's definitely something to be said about that. Do you think Super Troopers 2 looks sad and unappealing? Is that what you're, is that what you're yes. saying? Yes, extremely. I hope, I hope it's, I hope it's good. <laughs> I do. <laughs> Like the, uh, the 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 fifteen year old in me is just like oh please, we'll see, please don't the, be terrible. We'll see, we'll see, and that's why that two to four year window is good, be, because you know if it came out when you're fifteen and then you see it when you're seventeen or eighteen for the sequel, you're still going to kind of appreciate that same humor. When you see it when you're in your like late twenties and early thirties, like yeah, you may not just not find that humor quite as appealing. Anymore. Right. Not to mention it, it's it's now an old brand of humor. So even people who are that age now, who are fifteen and sixteen, they might watch it and be like, "This is stupid." Well, you know what's funny about this? So you do you do kind of neat pigeonhole yourself really. You're you're trying to approach something older. I mean, you can look at movies like Bad Santa Two or Zoolander, Zoolander 2. Two. Yeah, yeah. Zoolander Two is like the one that everybody. Oh God. Um, so yeah, I, I, uh, I, I, you know, it clearly Dundee is taking a, a different approach, which is smart. It's that's a sharp angle. Yeah. Like you're going to, you're going to take somebody who I'm trying to think of a good, an apt kind of approach. All I can think is like city slickers. You're going to take somebody who is normally one type of character and jam them into a role in which they would normally not yeah. fit in the fish, hopes. Fish out of water. Life. The fish out of water, of course. 
Um, yeah, seems like it might work. Whereas Super Troopers Two, yeah, looks like much more of the same. Yeah, but if it's effective, if it's if it's the same in a good way, then that's great. But it's so easy to miss that very slim window. So yeah, hopes for uh, Broken Lizard, hopes for Dundee. I guess we'll see what happens. Now for our final film of the evening, uh, Mary and the Witch's Flower. I mustn't give up. I made a promise. If you are not a Studio Ghibli fan, go ahead and turn off the podcast. Thanks for listening. (laughs) (laughs) This is is where you tune out. We specifically decided to put this at the end because I got to be honest, I'm a little ashamed that this is the only film I saw this week. I don't think anybody else went and saw this. And that's okay. Um, But yeah, Mary and the Witch's Flower. So this is a movie following, it's a movie almost like boyhood. You kind of need to understand where it came from and how it was made to appreciate it. Um, Studio Ghibli, Andy, do you know what Studio Ghibli is? Yes. I don't know if you say Ghibli or, have you seen any of their movies? Yes, a ton. And how dare you? Okay, well, great. Uh, Thank you. It's okay. It's it's an animation studio out of Japan. It's almost like I like to describe it as the Pixar of Japan or what Pixar used to be before Disney bought them. Um, they put out these incredibly animated films to tell these really endearing, often heartwarming and very deep stories that usually strike um, very close to, to, to the spirit, to the human soul. They usually have a message um, encouraging life, discouraging hate, encouraging growth, uh, how, how to find yourself. These little stories that are told in, in you know in, in very kind of traditional Japanese settings um, that are translated over here by Disney and make it over here, and they're they're usually really incredible. Most of them are, are directed by a guy named Hayao Miyazaki. Um, they're really fantastic films. Uh, Andy, if you had to recommend one, which one would it be? My go-to is uh, Princess Mononoke. Oh, solid entry, sir. Uh, arguably the most adult of the uh, Ghibli films. Fantastic mm-hmm. work. Uh, I, I have, of the very little art I have in my apartment, I definitely have this, like, black and gold screen print from Princess Mononoke <laughs> framed. Um, I also have the newspaper from Back to the Future 2 framed, but that's, you know, just me. I'd recommend Spirited Away. Won an, right. won an Oscar a few years back. Fantastic work. Anyway, Mary and the Witch's Flower is a movie that was produced by a bunch of animators and a director from Studio Ghibli. Studio Ghibli, since Miyazaki has quote, 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 unquote, retired, um, they kind of stopped making movies, frankly. Like, they haven't done much. And as far as I know, they're kind of just going to stop doing stuff, which is a shame. I mean, there's a whole museum dedicated to them in Japan. Um, they're a very cool studio. And I think their kind of angle is like, you know what, we've kind of, we, we've said what we needed to say. We're just going to kind of get out while the going's good. You know, we're going to go out on top, which is fine. Um, whereas normally in America, these studios would be run into the ground by money hungry, uh, you know, fat cats. The uh, accountants. Execs. <laughs> yeah. The accountants. The accountants, yeah, with their spreadsheets. That's right. Um, <laughs> In Japan, they're like, you know what, we're, we're going to kind of take a page from our own book, uh, from, from the lessons we've been trying to teach and to kind of get out. And that's well and good, but a couple of animators and some people who've worked over there are like, well, that's fine, but like, what are we supposed to do for work? And so drawing inspiration from Studio Ghibli, they, they started a studio called Studio Panak, or Panak. Uh, I'm not really sure how to pronounce it. It's based off a Norwegian, I think, word for midnight. And the whole idea is like rebirth. It's kind of a, you know, a, a step a sibling of like a a step from Ghibli kind of doing their own thing, but kind of carrying the same message. And their first film is this movie, Mary and the Witch's Flower. This came over here in a fathom event. And I think also now as of this weekend, it is 
uh, in limited runs at theaters nationwide. So your local theater might have it if you live next to a big city. Um, it is an animated film that looks exactly, almost exactly like any Studio Ghibli film. Very similar art style. It's directed by the guy uh, Hiramasa Yonabayashi, if I butchered that well enough. It's directed by the guy who directed The Secret World of Ariadne and When Marnie Was There, two later Ghibli films. Mm. I have um, seen uh, When Marnie Was There. I did see okay. that. Yeah, it's... Um, you'd probably agree it's not quite on par with like their other work but it's okay yeah yeah that's that's where i landed and and to not be too spoily in my brief review here i i feel kind of the same way about mary and the witch's flower it's all right it's more endearing than when marnie was there it's much more like action oriented um it's about a a young girl who lives out in britain of all places i think has moved out there and she lives with her grandma and she's kind of moved to this new town. She doesn't really fit in, and she's not really good at anything. People think she's kind of useless. She discovers a magical flower in a field, and uh, due to a certain series of events, uncovers a broomstick and realizes she is essentially has witch's powers, but only temporarily. And the broomstick ends up taking her to a magical place where she is lauded as a great witch, when really she is not that. She is, she is a fleeting, she, she, temporary magical powers. They go away. Um, and she ends up in kind of kind of ending up in a misadventure there and discovering, you know, growing up and getting older and fitting in. There, there's lessons there to be had in a very Ghibli format. Really, the issues here are simple. One, it's a children's film. It is rated PG. It is for kids. So unlike a movie like Mononoke, which is almost definitely made for adults, or even Spirited Away, where you feel like you can draw a lot of, like, inspiration from it as an adult you feel like there's a lot you can get out of it even though you're not a kid anymore this one is kind of not that way it is pretty <laughs> much a kids movie for kids like you you're not gonna the, the animation's pretty but like you're not gonna get a whole lot out of it Two, the animation um they don't have ghibli money they, they started this studio with pretty much nothing and it kind of shows the watercolor backgrounds which are very popular in ghibli animation they look fantastic but as far as the action on screen goes with primary characters, it's just kind of, a, I hate to say phoned in, but like, you can just tell. It's the first studio, they didn't really have the money for certain things. So there would be a scene in which a character would react to say, Mary would react to somebody dropping something. And she's kind of panicked and surprised. And you compare that and that reaction to another Ghibli film like Spirited Away, which won Oscars, to be fair, I shouldn't necessarily be comparing it, but... Like, it's just, it, it lacks a certain oomph. It lacks a certain emphasis. Like, emotions in Ghibli films, and another thing, food in Ghibli films, oddly enough, always looks very appetizing. Their emotions look very, very real. There's something to them. They have an energy. They have a liveliness. And this movie just kind of didn't have that, and I feel like if they had had more resources and time, they could have put more into it. But for our first entry, it's pretty good. The movie clocks in at an hour 42, and don't get me wrong, it feels a little long, but that's only because the plot kind of takes a weird... It weaves a weird path, as Ghibli movies do, and, and you kind of lose track of where the second and third act end and begin. Um, overall, it's pretty alright. I, I, I don't think it was anything particularly incredible. Um, it stars only two really well-known actors uh kate winslet and jim broadbent into titular roles um did you see subs good. or dubs uh i saw dubs okay 
I, for the record, I knew whenever you started mentioning voice other vo- non right. non Japanese right. voice that, actors. To be fair, I should I should have been aware of that. No, they did not <laughs> offer a subbed version at the Fathom event. It was dub only, so it's okay. The sound design's a little off. There's a couple there's a couple times when like at one point she drops a broom, uh, a wooden broom on a stone bridge, and it sounds like somebody dropped an iron pole in a gymnasium. Like it could not be further off. Like she dropped this thing. I was like, oh my God, like what, what was that? Just terrible, terrible Foley. Like just a lot of things that could have been tweaked and could have been a little better if they had had that kind of level of polish most Ghibli films do. Right. So it's a, just a little subpar. It's not necessarily terrible. And for a first entry from a new studio, I'm pleased. I need to see what they can do next. I need to see if they can take what they've learned here and build on it to make something better. So that about sums up what I think of Mary and the Witch's Flower. Annie, I'm hoping you have some some questions to kind of drag this <laughs> out a little bit, just make this a little bit more painful. What do you got? Um, well, a lot of uh, Studio Ghibli films um, are very fantastical in nature. You have magical creatures or magical settings, and you, you get some really incredible animation from that. Um, I, I recently, not recently, I saw Ponyo several years ago for the first time. Ponyo's great. Yeah, and I just was blown away by some of the uh, animations, some of the the stuff with the fish and the sea, and it was just really in- incredible looking. So, do we get any of that in Mary and the Witch's Flower? A little bit. Like I said, some of the most incredible stuff, honestly, is the watercolor. There will be a scene when, like, it just shows a landscape, per se, and, like, it's just this incredible portrait that you get to see of, like, this, you know, this, this sweeping landscape and a field and trees and stuff. There's some sh- shots of, like, flowers you know and some of that stuff is is nuts and there's other scenes there's other moments when you can tell they really put time into the animation there's a bit when she our our, our main character mary is at this uh wizarding school really is what she goes to and the headmistress played by kate winslet is kind of showing her through this place and there's certain bits in the school like this big gymnasium where there's people up on, like, there seems to be no gravity, and there's people up on walls, there's rock climbing, there's there's all this action going on, and there's this incredible amount of detail that goes into it. There's another scene when one of the main characters, Peter, uh, just this young boy character, who looks startlingly similar to uh, the main Zelda character, Link, from The Legend of Zelda, like, almost the exact same, it's weird. Um, he runs up a flight of stairs, of all things, just runs up a flight of stairs, but, like, the way they animated him and kind of that motion is kind of this, like, very fluid look that, like, reminds me of Ghibli. That stuff is great. But a lot of the times, you just end up with animation that, like, it's got beautiful color and I could tell what they were going for. But it just didn't quite hit that high. And to be fair, for the director coming off of Arietti and when Marnie was there, I would argue this is his best work visually and most like imaginatively like he put a lot of there's a lot of kind of personality in it but it just doesn't quite hit that high so i should clarify before i go any further this is based on a book like many ghibli films this is based on a move on a novel by mary stewart called the little broomstick the little broomstick yeah that's it i was gonna say I i didn't quite have it but um it is it's inspired by something previous and it's it's all right. I didn't know if you had any other questions or. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I uh, haven't seen. It. I I had seen a trailer for it uh, at one point, um, but I'm a big fan of of animation and uh, yeah. Studio Ghibli, so it's yeah, maybe uh, I'll check it out. 
I doubt it'll end up there because seemingly none of these films are available to stream as far as I know. But if it were to show up on something like Netflix or Amazon, I would recommend it easily. Dave, if you got an afternoon, you got nothing going on, check it out. You might like it, especially if you like those kind of movies. Um, if you are an average film goer and somehow made it through 12 minutes of this segment um, and you're not particularly intrigued by my subpar review, you can probably skip it and you'll be okay. But if you really like animation, if you have a real appreciation for Ghibli and you need something to scratch that that itch, something new, check it out. Support these guys because I really do think they're, they're making this cool studio that is going to be hopefully something like what Ghibli was and I would like to see them succeed and do more. So... Worth your time, only if you're really into it, I guess. So, yeah, that's Mary and the Witch's Flower. Is there anything else we need to get to? Um, well, I don't think we have time for it this week, but uh, I did recently get uh, Blade Runner 2049 on Blu-ray. Yes. And so I'm I- very, and I did watch it, and I loved it, uh, but we're definitely going to have to save that for next time. We should. Yeah, I, I got it as well. I haven't watched it. Uh, I need to sit down and, and give it a good give it a good old fashioned screening. I'm telling you, the biggest reason I haven't is exactly what I said. One of the first times we ever did any recording for this show. When I saw Blade Runner 2049 in theaters, I was watching it in theaters and I knew almost every time it cut to some like incredible wide shot or like had that awesome, awesome synth soundtrack like seep in or some like long pensive moment with one of the characters. I knew this is never going to be the same when I'm sitting in my stupid apartment watching this on my little television. <laughs> it's not. Like, it's not going to be the same experience. And it's going to be a lesser experience than what I had, and that bums me out. But I need to watch it anyway. I need to give the old college try. Um, what do you think? Brief first impressions, yeah, before we go. Uh, I, I loved it. It's a great sequel. It expands the universe, asks new questions. One of the best films of 2017. My favorite film of 2017. I think one of the best of the decade. Yeah. Arguably my favorite as well. Everybody who says it is boring or like the cinematic equivalent of watching paint dry makes me want to hurt myself because it is so much more than that. And I don't think we should discount it based on like what the average public thinks, if that makes any sense. It bums me out. This movie wasn't that successful financially because it should have been. It's great, and I wish more people appreciated it. Bold cinema, Andy. That's what it is. That's right. And with that, I think that just about wraps up our show. Uh, If you have listened thus far, thank you so much for listening. We really do appreciate it. The show would not be what it is without you. And if you have anything to say about it, (laughs) you can reach us at, and I'm going to butcher this, offscriptfilmreview.com. That's correct. Mail at offscriptfilmreview.com? Yeah, mail at offscriptfilmreview.com. Mail at offscriptfilmreview.com. Let us know that you love the show. Let us know that you hated it. Either way, feel happy to read it on the air. Um, Leave us a rating and review, assuming (laughs) assuming we're we're on some kind of podcast (laughs) distribution platform by the time this comes out. I'm working on it. We're going to get there someday. And uh, yeah, I think that about wraps it up. Any closing thoughts? Nope. That's Off Script, the home of Bold Cinema. This has been Off Script, the home of Bold Cinema. I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Thanks for listening.